Welcome back to the Between the Levees podcast. Today's episode will be an interesting one, I think. I'm joined by a gentleman who has a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering from Princeton. Uh, he was in school for his PhD at MIT 10 years before I was born. Uh, he was a former CEO of Ingram Barge, is currently a professor at Vanderbilt. And there is a 9,000 class horsepower line haul boat on the Lower Miss with his name on it. Mr. Craig E. Phillip, thank you very much for your time this morning. Well, thank you, Tim. I am uh, I am delighted to be here, and especially so since you're part of that uh, great uh, gang over at Ingram. Well, thanks again. Uh, if you've seen this before, you know how this begins. Please tell me, sir, where were you born? Uh, Tim, I was born in a suburb of Chicago, Lake Forest, Illinois, um, and in 1953. What did your parents do when you were growing up? Yeah, my... Um, my mother was a uh, public health nurse and um, eventually a school nurse in the uh, in the school system that I that I uh, that I went to as a as a child. Uh, my father was a uh, research scientist. My dad had had a really interesting story. He he uh, finished his uh, his chemical engineering schooling in 1942 and was expecting to uh, to join the joined the military as his older and younger brothers had both already done. And he got plucked out of the draft line and got assigned to a top secret project to help figure out how to commercially produce penicillin. And uh, he spent the rest of the war effort uh, on a project working uh, and successfully so to, uh, so that they could produce and manufacture penicillin, which is by many attributed, considered to be one of the most important uh, sources of success in World War II for the United States and the Allies. So uh, he, uh, when he when he did that, he was assigned to a um, uh, to work for a pharmaceutical company, Abbott Laboratories, and he uh, they were they were headquartered outside of Chicago, and he spent his entire career there. So that was my uh, that was my upbringing. Um, I was a golfer as a kid. Um, that was uh, part of the reason I found my way to Princeton. Um, spent my my youthful years caddying and. Uh, didn't play golf at Princeton, but uh, that's a long story, which we don't need to go into that, uh, that, that found me there. Um, always wanted to be a, somebody who uh, was going to have a career in uh, the world of planes, trains, and automobiles. I loved transportation as a kid growing up. Looking back, if I'd had the pick, I would have said I'd like to work in, in the airline industry. But as it turned out, the, uh, the, uh, the railroads called me first, and, the, uh, and then I later pivoted over to the to the maritime side and made a made a 30-year career at Ingram. Well, walk me through. You get your PhD from MIT, I believe, in 1980. So still six years prior to my arrival here. But um tell <laughs> me keep, about don't, don't keep empath don't keep em emphasizing that. I, I don't mean to rub it in. It's not my <laughs> fault or yours. Yeah. But uh nonetheless, tell me about how your career developed. I see there was a pit stop before uh the railroad. Yeah. Um well I I um I, during my graduate studies I spent a couple of years working down in Washington, D.C. for the trade association that represents the railroad industry there, equivalent of REWO. Uh, but when I finished my Ph.D. work, which was funded by the railroad industry or by the, by the Federal Railroad Administration, actually part of DOT, U.S. DOT, um, uh, I was kind of at a pivot point deciding whether to go be an academic, which is why I got the Ph.D. in the first place or to uh, spend some time in industry first. And uh, one of my mentors at MIT uh, encouraged me to go out and, and uh, live in the world for a while if I was going to be a teacher of it. Um, I didn't expect that that would lead to nearly 40 years of 
working in the railroad and maritime industries before I found my way to academics, but that's what happened. So I worked for a railroad uh, headquartered in Philadelphia, uh, Conrail, for, for a number of years. I got, got, a, cold call, got a cold call from a headhunter uh, that led me to Ingram. Um, I worked for Ingram for five years and, uh, and got, uh, got called again and, uh, and, and ended up working for a second railroad out in California for four years. And uh, thankfully, was able to return to Ingram and spent the balance of my, well, 25 years then with Ingram before retiring. Tell me what you can of each of those jobs, uh, what you did, and uh, <laughs> I guess learning as you went. Yeah, so the um, when I joined Conrail, I was working in their marketing area, and uh, it was a very exciting time to be in the, the rail industry, the railroad industry. Um, you would not remember this, of course, but they were in a very difficult financial situation. Most of the railroad industry was either in bankruptcy or close to it. Uh, one of the primary reasons for that was the nature of regulation that, that was kind of uh, had, had a pretty tight screws around their financial viability. So 1980, the same year I joined Conrail, was the year that they passed the Staggers Act, which was the, the, uh, the, the big body of legislation that deregulated the railroad industry. And many attribute it to the reason that they survive and, and, and relatively speaking, through thriving today in the freight sector. So I had a, had a great run there. Um, it was a wide open territory, uh, all sorts of new opportunities to do creative things. Um, and uh, I got a, got a, really did get a cold call from a, from a headhunter about a job down in Tennessee. The, as, I, as I trace it back, um, there was an executive down at, uh, at a Canal Barge Company, Walter Hagestad, who was their head of operations. And uh, he was good friends with John Donnelly, who was the head of Ingram Barge Company at the time. And uh, anyway, one of Doug's children, about the same age I was, was an executive with one of the other railroads. And uh, that was the meandering kind of con connectivity that led me to come down to Ingram uh, and uh, decide to take a job down here. Um, it, was a, it was a big move, a big change. Um, coming to the South, uh, my wife was also a transportation person and she ended up finding a great job here in Nashville working for the Transit Authority. And we did have a family yet, so it uh, it didn't seem like a high risk uh, opportunity. Um, you know, certainly didn't know much about Ingram. Um, knew something about the barge business. I'd studied it, of course. Um, and Ingram was a small company at the time, and uh, I did learn that they had a pretty cool owner, Bronson Ingram, and um, was uh, was really lucky to to kind of stumble into the opportunity to to uh, to basically hang my wagon with uh, with a family like the Ingrams, which I was able to do. Um, then after, after I can talk about the early years at Ingram in a minute, if you'd like, but um, I did get lured out to California to work for a railroad out there. Um, it was one of my former colleagues at Conrail who had moved out there and taken a very senior position. And he was in the position to offer me and basically anything I wanted to do out there for that railroad if I'd come and join them, join him. And uh, at the time, the international marketplace was just changing so rapidly. Um, China wasn't really ascendant, but Japan and Korea were, were beginning to uh, were beginning to flex their muscles. Uh, looked like they were going to take up over the auto industry, for example. But anyway, for a, a railroad in the western part of the United States, that was a huge opportunity. Um, it was a chance for me to take a job with them, kind of running their international marketing and sales activities and their intermodal um, business. And uh, this was the Southern Pacific was the railroad and they were the first railroad to experiment with these double stack rail cars, the ones that you now see everywhere. 
that have the containers stacked on top of each other. And that was the biggest technological innovation in the railroad industry since they went from steam to diesel. And um, so all that said, um, it was just a chance to, uh, to really play in a, in a very, very different sandbox than I was gonna get the opportunity to do at Ingram. Um, I don't think I'm making it up to remember that when I, when I talked and honestly was talking to Bronson Ingram and uh, my mentor at Ingram at the time, Neil Deal, who I can talk about a little more. Um, both of them were really open to the idea that this was something I probably ought to go give it, go do. And uh, and they both they couldn't promise me, but they did say that uh, if I um, if and when I wanted to return, they they'd be open to and enthusiastic to think about that. And of course, that's what happened. So um, my early years at Ingram. Um, you know, we were we were a pretty small barge line and thinking, you know, comparing to today with 5,000 barges and 150 boats or something like that. Um, we had 20 boats and a couple of hundred barges and um, primarily a uh, petroleum carrier and just beginning to get into the dry cargo business. Um, the year before I arrived, which was 1982, we uh, the Ingrams had built the John Donnelly uh, at the time, the, the first large lower Mississippi River towboat in the fleet. Um, certainly don't, didn't know this at the time, but, uh, but it was the last towboat that Ingram built uh, until I think a couple of the small ones that, they, that they're not just now uh, putting into service. And um, so the, I think the question that Bronson had was, how do we, do we grow the business? How do we grow the business? Maybe we get out of the business. Um, there was a phenomenon um, that, that had really afflicted the industry at that time. The, the tax laws had been changed and, was, and made it really attractive for individual investors to own assets like barges. And so many doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, anybody looking for a tax shelter jumped into, uh, jumped into the, uh, to the business of owning barges. They'd, they'd started out doing it with railroad cars. So I learned something about that. And, um, but the long and short of it was that the, the number of, of hopper barges in the industry from the, from the, uh, you know, from the mid seventies to the mid eighties, the number of hopper barges in the industry just about doubled. And, the, uh, of course, we're a supply-demand-driven business, and the consequence of that was really difficult um, in terms of the earning potential of the of the of the, the fleets that everybody had. So we um, we looked around at opportunities to sell. We looked at opportunities to grow. One of the areas we grew was by beginning to take over managing those those investor-owned barges. So we had at the time barges that were initialed SHE and LEA, and those were for the, for the Shearson partnership barges and the Lehman partnership barges, and the MLs were the Merrill Lynch partnership barges. So that was one way we started to grow. And then the first big acquisition we made was of Ohio Barge Company, which was the, uh, which was the company, uh, the house company of United States Steel. And um, at the time we were about four, as I recall, this was in 1984, 1985, we were maybe 450 barges and Ohio barge line was a little bigger than we were. Um, and uh, the, uh, so we, we made that acquisition. Um, I think at, at the time it felt to me for sure, uh, like a Beth the Ranch kind of, a, kind of an acquisition. Um, and one of the most important things that ended up happening as a result of that is we, many, had, many individuals joined the Ingram uh, management team from Ohio barge line. Most importantly was Neil Deal, who was the, who was the, the head of the of, of U.S. Steel's barge companies, and he joined us, became CEO of the business, um, and uh, certainly for me personally, uh, just a, a watershed event 
the uh, just a couple of years previous to that, I'd lost my father, and uh, and I think I'd be I'd be, be fair to say um, Neil became a not only a not only a boss and a leader and an, and an overseer, he became a father to me. Um, he had a couple of kids that were very near my age, and uh, anyway, so he uh, it was it was reciprocal. But we had a he was a, he became a very influential part of my uh, of my time at Ingram and my 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 life. Um, anyway, so that that led to a left for a Southern Pacific for a few years. Did have the chance to come back. Um, I was reflecting on the. Um, on the on the fact that uh, I haven't been alone in this this journey of of, of uh, starting at Ingram, leaving and coming back. Um, I kind uh, of think a couple of the CEOs that have followed me. Uh, the one that is currently John Roberts was a person that I helped hire way back in the '90s, uh, and he left and came back. And uh, Kaz Shah uh, also was someone who actually had worked at Ingram before I got there, uh, left and uh, and then came back and had a long career there. So. I feel like I'm in really good company, actually, uh, of people that have managed to uh, do a couple of tours with the with the Ingram family. Um, so, where else would you like to go with this, Tim? Tell me some more about your uh, your tenure. I guess your second round with Ingram, and and how that ended, yeah. and how how you eventually jumped to a professorship at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Um, gosh. Um, you know, we 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 just had a um, we, we were really fortunate, I think, to be a um, by then had a I think had owners that that were really committed to the business. Of course, um, the same year I joined Ingram in 1982, uh, Orrin Ingram joined uh, as uh, had just finished his his uh, uh, his schooling at Vanderbilt, um, and uh, so we started working together. Um, you know, almost from the day I arrived, and you know his his passion and and. Uh, about the business is pretty obvious to anyone, and I know you've had him on your on your podcast too. Um, and we were really fortunate to be a privately held company that was that kind of foundationally wanted to take a long view of everything, and uh, that worked beautifully in this in this large marketplace that was fairly cyclical. Uh, and I would call us patient and opportunist investors. And, uh, you know, I can't, I'm not sure I could recount all of the acquisitions that we ended up making in addition to building hundreds and hundreds of new barges, never a towboat, um, because our, our, our feeling was that, that um, you know, there wasn't a lot, there wasn't a lot of new, there wasn't a lot of value added. If you looked at the productivity of a new towboat that might cost three times what a used boat would cost. We usually found with the acquisitions we'd made that people had not maintained their equipment very well, uh, certainly not up to what we would call an Ingram standard. Um, and uh, but that if you if you invested the money and then maintained that equipment, that it was going to be as productive and have as long a life as anything you could build new. So, um, you know, but so uh, American Barge and Towing, MG Transport, Riverway, Tampa Electric, the biggest one, Ohio River Company, which I think was 2002 or 2003. Uh, by far, they were the when we made that acquisition, I think they were the would be considered the second biggest company. We would have been the third. Um, and uh, that was a uh, that was certainly a big watershed, you know, event that basically pushed us into a position to be considered the largest barge company. Um, so had a had a great, you know, had great owners who wanted to who who were supportive of the business and bankers behind us to make those acquisitions. And over time, a pretty good track record of delivering value when we uh, added and uh, 
we were certainly of the belief that I think has proven true that there was tremendous economies of scale to being bigger. Um, and, and I think over the years, we're able to, to pretty handily prove that. You know, I look, I look at what was in the culture of the business. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, you know, fanatically embraced the notion that, that, that uh, kind of family values was really important to us. Uh, of course, we had the family name on every asset we owned. Um, and I think there was one area looking back on it where I think that got in our way a little bit, and that was in the area of safety. And um, the, the, we kind of translated that, that notion of family to the, to, the, to the operation of the vessels themselves, which is very easy to do when you think about a towboat with a captain who's effectively the father and a cook who becomes the mother of the fleet and, or the, of the boat. And, and um, I think as I look back on it, we, uh, we were, we did, we, we let those, but we let those vessels from a safety perspective operate too autonomously um, without, I'll call them guardrails, or I, we all ultimately, the word I always embraced was sort of non-negotiables, that we want to give people freedom and flexibility, but it's, it's within, within a set of constraints and boundaries. And uh, I think we, you know, we, I know early in, right after I'd become president of the company, which um, must have been about 2000 or so, we had a fatality and it really, it really shook me to the core. Um, actually happened here on the Cumberland River, very close to, close to our office in Nashville and uh, totally preventable. Um, and um, that led us on a safety journey, which I think I'm, I'm confident carried through to this, to this morning um, that I think has made industry a, a leader in, in, in that regard. Um, for me personally, the, um, I kind of took that, what to me was an emerging um, um, understanding of how important safety was and uh, to kind of a lot of the work we did with the industry. Um, again, really blessed that the, uh, that the Ingram family, Bronson first, then Warren, were really supportive of us investing our time and energy in the work of the industry trade associations. Um, and the, uh, the most important things in that regard that I kind of look back on and proud of is the, is the work we did in the safety side. And there were two important things about that that, um, that, that um, I had a lot of involvement in. Um, one was the, um, the, the thing that is now called and not always, um, not always with, with uh, um, a sense of uh, that it's good is subchapter M or the, the, uh, the, the regulatory regime that, that, was, that, was, uh, that, that was ultimately established by the Coast Guard for towboats. And as, you may well remember we had a long period of time when the towboats were kind of considered to be unregulated. We, we as an industry, I was the chairman of the American Waterways operators at the time, took the, what was, you know, a pretty very significant step. And we went to Congress with the Coast Guard sitting with us and said, it's time for the industry to be regulated. Um, we think that that will be sensible and can be good for the industry. And, uh, and it, was, it was only a matter of time before we were going to have some sort of disaster that... Um, that was going to fo foist that on us anyway, and we would be better served to, to be able to manage it. And uh, so I was very involved in that, in that work to bring Subchapter M to the industry. Uh, it took a lot longer than, than anybody ever dreamed uh, to get it from the legislation that got passed to the point with just in the last couple of years where it's now, I guess, fully effective. But, but um, so I, I, I was involved in, in, in leading that, that activity at the industry level and uh, and look back on that with, with pride. 
The second area is with the in the area of training and the the emerging uh, relationship which our industry now has with Siemens Church Institute, and um, that goes back now uh, predates uh, subchapter M. And I'm not sure we would have started gone after the subchapter M if if we hadn't started with Siemens Church. Um, but about the mid '90s, a number of us in the industry were were talking about the desirability of 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 uh, using simulator training as a as a tool in our in our in our toolbox to uh, to improve the, the the training and effectiveness of our especially our wheelhouse associates and the um, we stumbled on Siemens Church as a partner to do that and um, the look back on the, the, what Siemens Church means to the industry today not just in the training side with that fabulous facility that they have in Paducah and and now Houston uh, but the the whole the whole um, other thread of what they do uh, in the uh, in the ministry area, um, and think that it's. I'm just so proud of the of the fact that Ingram was really important um, as a part of uh, bringing Siemens Church to the heartland. Um, been serving on the board of Siemens Church for more than 20 years, um, and um, and continue to to you know feel feel really strongly and excited about about what they've brought to the uh, to the industry. Um, so those are the those are the big things. The final area I'll note is um, we were always really active in uh, in uh, almost a survival uh, kind of strategy of trying to make sure the Corps of Engineers had enough funding to keep the waterways, the system that we rely upon, the locks and dams and levees and dredging uh, in Washington. Uh, we were very involved. My Neil Deal, my my mentor, especially with his his peers at the time, and this goes back into the early '90s. Uh, to create what is now Waterways Council, which I think is the is a really vibrant and effective uh, advocacy group on the on the issues around uh, infrastructure. You know, a little, thinking back about the people that were involved at the time: Mike Hagan at ACBL, Joe Pine at Kirby, Fred Raskin at Ohio River Company at the time, Mark Canoy uh, with AEP and uh, its uh, Memco. And uh, anyway, that the the um, that was a that was a heavy lift too to get that to get us organized and, and working collaboratively together. But but uh, always excited to see that they seem to be surviving and thriving. And and uh, you know the, the recent success in in, uh, in dollars coming into the waterway infrastructure, the the money that finally completed Olmstead Lock and Dam, which was you know really really critical to the the kind of the, the viability of the network. Uh, really really excited to see that that all is that all is continuing to this day. Well, before we dive into your tenure there at Vanderbilt, tell me what it was like working with and for Bronson Ingram and John Donnelly. Um, boy, Bronson was, um, you know, the, I think most of the stories about him are true. <laughs> They're just not enough. Uh, uh, Oren is like him in many ways, different and different others, but um, just a, um, you know, in, in an era almost before computers, he was a, um, he inhaled financial information. Um, never went into a meeting with him that he didn't know more than I did about the, about the, uh, about the financial, <laughs> the financial activities of the company. Um, and uh, he was, uh, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't accept substandard work, I guess would be the, would be the would way to describe it. And, uh, so he was he was hard on his team. Um, 
but the um, I remember I remember on a couple of occasions listening to him at in forums where he was being asked by people, well, what do you attribute the success of your company to? And it is a pretty interesting company if you look at Ingram Industries over the decades about the, all the different kinds of businesses they've been in. Um, and uh, you know, his answer always was, um, I am I'm fanatical about finding, hiring, keeping great people. Um, and uh, letting them lead us where we need to go. And I can't tell you, this is him speaking now, I can't tell you there was a strategy that had a book business and a barge business and an insurance business and a coal business and a wellhead manufacturing business um, um, all under one roof. It's not my strategy that we're there, but it's, the, it's kind of the combined strategy of the people that I've, that I've hired in all of those businesses uh, to make them a success. And uh, he treated us that way. And, uh, you know, he was uh, generous with his people, generous with his support of his, the community here in Nashville, um, along, with his, along with Martha, his, his wife, and uh, who's still with us, thankfully. And um, so just, just, you know, just a couldn't think of somebody I would have rather hung my, hung my career with uh, than him. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say basically those same, same things about Oren. Um, he just loved the business so much, um, loved the people so much, um, gave us, gave me so much um, birth to, uh, to do the job that he was asking me to do, supportive about the money, the people, um, the work I was doing outside the organization. Um, so the, um, you know, our, any, 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 any superior subordinate relationship uh, has its moments. Um, the, um, but, but they were just unbelievable um, people to have had the chance to align myself with. As far as John Donnelly is concerned, a longtime Ingram person, uh, when I arrived, he was uh, kind of in the, he was in the last years. I didn't know that at the time of his career as a longtime Nashvillian, um, just a graceful Southern gentleman, um, uh, tough as nails, but uh, the heart of gold, um, and uh, so it was. Uh, it was uh, just a, a miracle to have uh, to have found this team to have joined joined forces with. What are your thoughts on intermodal containers moving via barge? Mm. Yeah, if I'd have to, if I'd have to point to a to a disappointment about my time in the industry, I would I would point to the to the fact that could never find the never find the uh, the keys to that to the keys to that kingdom. Um, uh, and it wasn't for lack of looking. And I know Ingram is, is, uh, is still pursuing it and honestly with more success than I had when I was there. Uh, so I'm ex really excited to, to see that. Um, the, um, over, over the years, um, I would, I almost had a canned presentation about, about, about container on barge. And I would, I would pull it out every time I had an Ingram board member that would, that would, uh, uh, go on a cruise on the Rhine River. Um, I could, uh, I, if I didn't, if I knew they were going, I was just expecting this coming back. Or I found out about it when they got back because they would, they would send me a, uh, they would send me a sheaf of photographs of all the container on barge activity on the Rhine River and ask, why don't we do that here? And um, um, that would, that would be a good subject of a, of a, of a, of a podcast. And uh, so maybe, maybe want to organize one with a couple of other folks to talk about that. But, but my simple answer um, 
which is which on at a foundational level is to some degree true is turned looking at Europe and actually there's a tremendous container on barge activity on the Yangtze River in China. Um, but I'll, I'll speak to Europe specifically. Um, in Europe, if you've ever if you've ever driven over there, you know that you pay as a driver, you pay about three or four dollars a gallon in tax on the diesel on the diesel or gasoline that you use for your automobile. And the same is true for the truckers that that are moving cargoes in anywhere in Europe. And if you're a if you're a barge operator, you are paying zero dollars in tax for moving containers on the river on the waterway. So you've started out with a huge government-inspired uh, motivation for shippers to, to use the waterways because it makes the, the economics, which are usually cheaper on a per mile basis, but it's all the ancillary stuff that you need to make the logistics work, the terminals and the, all that stuff. Which in, so, it's, so foundationally, it worked in Europe and in China, it's similar. It works there because the government has decided that it's a really important objective to to not have that not have that freight moving on the highways, but to move on water. And they put their money where their mouth is through the tax structure. And we've never had that here. You know, as a towboat operator, we pay a we pay a diesel tax, and it's about the same per gallon of diesel that as the truckers pay. And uh, and so the uh, so you start out with a you don't start out with any incentive on the, for the shippers part. And then you have to deal with the confront some of the realities, which is the barge, the barge operation is slower, um, never going to be as fast as moving a truck, and it's uh, to some degree it's moving in the wrong direction. Um, if you look at the freight flows in the United States today, most of them are east to west on a containerized basis, and the and the freight flows on, of course, we go north and south. So, so that's a bit of a meandering, long question, but it's. Um, you know, I am hopeful that uh, as as uh, as the as the we move in a direction where where um, uh, and emissions from transportation become more and more important, and people are focused on on uh, reducing the carbon footprint of transportation, that the that the advantages that barge have will become more and more important, uh, and that that will lead to more success, like Ingram is starting to have now, moving some container and barge. Um, but it was something, and I. I had played in that intermodal sandbox when I was at the railroad out on the West Coast and, and was, uh, came back all jazzed up about being able to push that hard on our, on our system, and it just hadn't worked out yet. I'll be sure to include you on the panel for that Container on Board okay. podcast one of these days. That would be fun. That would, that would be fun. Well, tell me uh, briefly, I guess, your, uh, your tenure at Vanderbilt, and I guess you're, are you still teaching? I am. Um, my, my work at Vanderbilt is more in the research area than in the teaching in the teaching area. Um, we have a uh, we have a transportation center in the School of Engineering called Vector, the Vanderbilt Center for Transportation and Operational Resilience. And uh, I work with colleagues both in engineering and across the university to to uh, secure funding to do research projects um, that will be be work that will be helpful to our students. In, uh, in pursuing their graduate education, especially, but undergraduate as well. Um, so we have a we have a portfolio of research funded by the state government, by the federal government, by uh, private entities. Um, we have a big portfolio right now in the decarbonization area, and have the American Bureau of Shipping, um, uh, which is a uh, which is a very important funder of of work that we do. And um, so I'm I've been uh, starting my eighth year here here at Vanderbilt, and uh, 
longer than I was expecting, and I've, I've probably got a couple more years left in me. Um, the main teaching I've done here has been um, teaching uh, professional ethics. So I haven't done, I've done, I do guest, I get to do guest speaking at, uh, at uh, some of the courses my colleagues teach where I can bring, bring some of my uh, deck plate level knowledge of the business to bear. Um, but the thing I'm really interested in from a, from a teaching perspective, especially for undergraduates, is, is helping them to understand the, the ethical dilemmas that they're going to, uh, to face when they, when, they, when they step out of the university environment into whatever professional life they're going to do. And for my, many of my undergraduate students, they have to, um, they have, to have a, they, they get a professional engineer's license. And so they, they have to, uh, they have a portion of their education that needs to be focused on ethics. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I guess my, I, when I start the course, I tell them that, that usually when we think about ethical dilemmas and, and ethics, we think about trying to discern between what's right and wrong. And uh, most of the hard ethical questions and challenges that I remember facing um, usually related to issues where it was a matter of right and right. And uh, you got to, that's the, that's where you, that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of dealing with those kinds of, kinds of things. Well, tell me about your family. Did you have children that followed you down the engineering path? Um, sort of. Um, I have two daughters. Uh, they are, they are uh, in your generation, 38 and 36. Um, they're both chemical engineers by undergraduate training. My older daughter uh, ended up uh, getting a PhD in biochemistry. And um, she works in uh, Brussels, Belgium for a, uh, for a large pharmaceutical company, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, she moved over there uh, joining a, her husband, following her husband who is, took, a, took a university teaching job at one of the universities in Belgium. Um, anyway, she, she works in the vaccines division of GlaxoSmithKline. So she started in that in 2019. And as you might imagine, with what happened early in 2020, she's had a pretty interesting run. Um, they're, a, they're a prominent player in the vaccines world. So, so she's, uh, she is fully occupied um, uh, in living a lot in the domain of how do we manufacture these, these, uh, these vaccines that the scientists can now invent. Um, so what was, uh, what was really kind of... Um, cute and cool to me was uh, uh, we named her Julia after my father, Julien, who was the, my chemical engineer dad, who, who of course was working on how do you manufacture penicillin? And now she's working on manufacturing, trying to figure out how to manufacture all these complicated vaccines that we do. And uh, so I'm kind of feel like, uh, kind of feel like that's been, that's kind of a, a salute to him, which uh, always makes me smile. My younger daughter is, uh, uh, went from used her chemical engineering background to uh, become a doctor, and uh, so she um, um, got her MD and went to did a surgical residency. And um, she is just finishing up a um, a fellowship to be a transplant surgeon, and um, we'll finish that this summer. And just in the last couple of weeks, has learned that she's uh, she's going to be she's at the University of Wisconsin um, in their transplant center, and she's going to be staying at the University of Wisconsin, joining their faculty. Um, and getting what she calls it, finally getting a big person job after uh, at, when she adds up her undergraduate and graduate years and, and med, med school and residency and fellowship, she's, uh, she will have been out, she will have been in school 18 years since she left high school. So um, she's, she's about ready for a big person's job and, and uh, just so proud of her and, 
And uh, I don't know how she did this, but she managed to uh, manage to squeeze in having a uh, having a son. So I've, uh, I'm three years end, into being a, a, a granddad and uh, and have to have to say that that's the that's the coolest gig that that, that I've had the chance to to uh, to do. So I spend uh, I don't want to tell you how many times I've driven through Paducah, Kentucky in the last 36 months on my way to Madison, Wisconsin, but we we make that drive at least once a month to go up there and, and spend some time with them. And uh, she has a chaotic life. And uh, so yeah, in fact, uh, we'll, be we'll be driving by Paducah tomorrow um, on my way to Wisconsin. Well, speaking of travel, I know you just went to Egypt. Fill me in on yep. some details and highlights <laughs> of that trip. Well, the, um, of course, the Nile River is the, is the heart and soul of everything that is Egypt. Because uh, if you're not around the Nile, you're in the Sahara Desert. Um, and uh, you know, from a, it's got it's got a lot of features that look a bit like the Mississippi River, a huge delta area between Cairo and Alexandria on the on the Mediterranean coast. And um, you know, it's it's just not traveled um, around the world, and uh, but I've never seen the, the the concentration of these antiquities that are that are present in Egypt, and just absolutely astonishing to me that this the pyramids, the temples, the tombs, the um, you know, all date back to 1000 to 3000 BC. The pyramids themselves were built in 3000 BC. Um, and um, I read up some, read up on the, on kind of the, as a civil engineer by training, kind of read some stuff when I was getting ready for the trip to, um, about how they built, how, the, how did they do this stuff um, in that era before you had the wheel, before you had, you know, anything mechanical basically and uh, the truth is they don't really know um, how this all got how this all happened uh, at least it's not settled science uh, which I thought was amazing and um, I would have to say that um, if I had to put money in a betting jar um, about what really happened over there I'm, I came back from the trip feeling a little bit like the the, the kind of the crazy conspiracy theorists that think that we must have had been visited by extraterrestrials in this period almost feels like the only explanation for how they did all this stuff. So, um, I, um, yeah, it's a, it's like no other place I've been around the world and, uh, people, if they have the chance to go, it's, it's, a, it's worth a visit. I think I mentioned to you that I had took a Nile cruise as part of that. And I did not realize a little embarrassed about that, that they had locks and dams on the Nile river. Um, had a chance to, to ride through one of them uh, on our on our on our cruise. Uh, I think I talked my way into the wheelhouse because I had some I had some photos on my phone of, of big Ingram toes on the lower Mississippi River and, and uh, didn't speak much much Egyptian. They didn't speak much English, but we managed to communicate that we were fellow mariners. Um, so that, that was a, one of the highlights of my trip. How different was the vessel? Uh, do you know what the horsepower was, oh. and what, what were you pushing? Oh, we know this was this was a cruise vessel. So it was a river cruise vessel. Um, and um, so I think we had 120 passengers. And honestly, I don't know what the what the, the horsepower was. I never, never kind of dug in to ask. Um, but it, well, let's see, how big was it? Um, yeah, it was it was probably 70 feet wide and, and 200 feet long or something like that. So a little bigger than a than a than a, than, a, than, a, than a single barge, but not much. And that was based on the, the, the size of the lock that they had, which was not 110 feet wide. Um, they could fit two of 
those vessels into the lock chamber at the same time. So that was clearly one of the constraints in the, the size of the vessel they were operating. Switching gears entirely. What do you think about okay. this, little, this little podcast project I have going on? Tim, I am, uh, I can't remember who, uh, who first alerted me to the fact that you were doing it and it's been six months or so since we talked. It's so cool. Um, I haven't listened to all of it, all of your, all of the things that are online, but every one I do is, is, uh, just really interesting. I learn stuff, uh, makes me smile. Sometimes makes me cry a little bit. Um, um, you know, it's, it's an industry with such a rich history. Um, and uh, a lot of that is built around the, the people and you've, you know, you focus like a laser on the, on the stories behind the, uh, behind the stuff. And uh, so I've really appreciated um, the interest and passion that you have for, for uh, kind of chronicling all of this and putting it out there in a place that will, will, be, will be preserved for a long time. So, um, so appreciate, thank you for, for, uh, for being inspired to do this. Well, thank you for that. It's been uh... It's it's sort of grown much larger than I expected it to in, <laughs> in those six months. But uh, to wrap up, I know we're on a bit of a time crunch here. Um, do you have any message for the industry from CEOs all the way down to brand new deckhands? Um, you know, I don't think we've done quite a good enough job of, of communicating um, what a spectacularly good career is available in our industry. Um, and um, I work for a, uh, I'm on the board of a, of a public trucking company. Um, and uh, so I've gotten really sensitized to the issues that they have uh, attracting and retaining people to, to do that hard work. Um, and I wouldn't want to comment on whether it's harder or easier than working on a towboat. They're both, they're both got their very significant challenges, of course, but um, we have for, I'm now speaking for the, for the folks on the vessels have such a, such a spectacular opportunity for people to to um, start as a start as an, as as a relatively untrained person and to uh, and to progress into really responsible high paying positions and yes absolutely they the work uh, and the lifestyle is different than what many of us are accustomed to um, but but as uh, you know we've we've uh, as, as we've all gotten gotten adapted to uh, to kind of different different configurations of work from home, um, whether it's at places like Ingram or places like Vanderbilt, honestly, um, you know, I, I point to the I point to the to the work we are doing and are doing out in the waterway and say, well, this was this is this is a, just a different kind of work from home scenario. So some of that's a that's a message which um, I know the industry is working hard on individual companies, but also the AWO and National Waterways Foundation are actively working to, to figure out how to tell that story better, because I think it really is a great one. Um, what's, what's really interesting is now having, having a career that is uh, you know, more than 40 years since I've stepped foot in Ingram uh, to today, um, the industry continues to be really important, really vital to the economy. Um, can't conceive of a scenario going forward where that doesn't continue to be the case. Um, I think there are lots of, of, of incentives and pressures looking, looking ahead and out of the future that are gonna be really favorable for the barge business. Um, we have a great environmental footprint, best of any transportation mode. Um, and in all sorts of other dimensions, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're friends of the community, not, not, uh, not, not kind of uh, um, opponents or people that are, that, are, that are pushing a lot of negatives as truckers and railroads are. And we're, 
you know, unfortunately, we're seeing the 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 manifestations of probably the vulnerabilities of some of our competing modes in the in the rail side with 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 some of the recent accidents that have happened. And honestly, I I don't think the railroads are prepared to deal with those with those issues. And I think um, you know our, I think our industry has the uh, right to be so doggone proud of the safety record which we've achieved. I mean, it's been years and years since we've had significant incidents that anybody would pay attention to. And that's not by accident. That's because the industry um, had the courage to say, we're going to deal with this issue. Uh, we're not going to hide from it. Um, yeah, we got huge liabilities that, that, that kind of surfaced after the Exxon Valdez, but, but I think we responded in exactly the right way. And I've been glad to be a, a small part of that. And uh, I think those are foundations that will, that will do the industry a lot of good in years to come, even more perhaps than they've done in the past. Well, Mr. Phillip, thank you very much for that. And thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's been, been a delight to be with you this morning. We'll keep in touch.